Welcome to another episode of Simply Feedback. This podcast is brought to you by LearningBridge, a worldwide leader in custom 360-degree surveys. Each month in the Simply Feedback podcast, we bring you interesting conversations with professionals who are passionate about developing current and future leaders with the power of feedback. Our guest today is Alan Richter. Alan is the founder and president of QED Consulting, a 31-year-old company based in New York. He has consulted to corporations and organizations for many years in multiple capacities, primarily in the areas of leadership, values, culture, and change. He's a recognized pioneer in the diversity and ethics fields. Dr. Richter is the creator of the Global Diversity Game, an award-winning training tool, and co-creator of the Global Diversity Survey and other innovative products which help organizations measure their diversity and ethics initiatives, respectively, against global best practices. I've known Alan for a long time as uh, we have worked together on his surveys, including the Global Diversity Survey. Alan, it's great to have you with us today. I'm excited about our conversation. Thank you, Troy. Great to be with you, too, and look forward to our conversation. So we heard a little bit about you in that bio that I read through, but would you just tell us and our audience, maybe start with some of the things that you're most passionate about? Yeah, you gave the sort of background to uh, my business, but there's more to me than just the business. And so I should add, you're probably wondering where I'm from with a strange accent. So I'm South African originally. I left South Africa as a young man under the apartheid system, which is important to things that I'm passionate about. It's about fighting apartheid. And that took me to the UK where I did a doctorate in philosophy and became instantly unemployed. And then I married an American and she dragged me to New York. So when I introduce myself, I like to say that my heart is South African. My head is English and my hands are all American and I'm most passionate about diversity and inclusion and that obviously reflects very much my upbringing in a society where that wasn't valued. And uh, my other passion is around ethics and integrity, which is, uh, I guess, related to my uh, studies in philosophy. And that all connects to um, feedback in the sense that I strongly and passionately believe that great leaders, global leaders, have to have high integrity uh, and to lead inclusively. So both of those are critical components of leadership and part of what feedback should include those issues around ethics and those issues around diversity and inclusion. That's fantastic. That's background that I hadn't ever known specifically. I had recognized the South African accent, but I hadn't made the connection to diversity, obviously coming from your background, coming from South Africa, why that would be so important to you. Well, sure. I mean, we call ourselves the rainbow nation today, but when I grew up under apartheid, it was a very, very different South Africa. And I think my uh, awakening, as it were, at the university as a young man around the inequities in South Africa is, is what's continued in my professional life as a consultant in this area. So you, you said earned your doctorate of philosophy in England and instantly became unemployed. What was the transition then to go from that into starting QED Consulting? How did that come about? So when you have a PhD in philosophy, there's not a lot you can do formally. I mean, you can teach others philosophy, and there were 500 people applying for positions. So uh, in order to survive, and being a South African in the UK at the time, I had no rights. I couldn't take a proper job. I had to be a consultant. So in a sense, philosophy turned me into a consultant, and I learned to get jobs and gigs, and, and I did a lot of different things. I was teaching at the Open University and writing and editing, and I was a jazz reviewer. I mean, anything to make a, a living. But then I came 
carried that with me when I married my American wife and she dragged me back to New York here uh, and started consulting in the States and ended up in management consulting. That's where I ended up doing my work and instantly saw the connections between all of my philosophical background and training as well as my life experience and how valuable that was to the field. I mean, certainly the ethics field, that's obvious, but also to the diversity field because in the 1980s, that was a, a time when diversity was coming into its own in a sense. There were some very prominent thinkers and, and there were you know, important writings at the time beyond race and gender, Roosevelt Thomas. It was after the Hudson Report, which warned the American business world that diversity was coming fast and furious and they better get used to it. So my mm -hmm. timing was probably convenient or, or lucky in the sense of when I got to the States. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. I think you really bring an interesting perspective with your background and academic training to be able to come to an organization and really share some ideas, share some themes and things with them that are probably new to a lot of businesses, especially in the United States. I wanted to ask, as you work with different clients, what are some of the common issues that you encounter and as you work with them? So we do three things as a, as a company, as QED. Uh, we do do consulting work, which is heavily around strategy and around assessment. And, and then we do training. That's our, always been our bread and butter. We've been doing management training and diversity and ethics and leadership training for years and years and years. And then the third piece is really the development of instructional products. I'm proud to say we are the co-authors of five self-assessment tools, the Global Diversity Survey, the Global Leadership Survey, something called AEIOU. There's a gender assessment and there's one on coaching. And then we also have co-authors of two, I think, very important benchmarking tools. One is called the Global Diversity and Inclusion Benchmarks, and the other is the Global Ethics and Integrity Benchmarks. But all of this is about gaining information, gaining insight, and uncovering what's going on in an organization. Even if it's individuals, we have the opportunity to aggregate the data so we can get a more global systemic picture about what is going on. I should also add who we work with. We've worked in over 70 countries, a lot in the United Nations system. We worked with uh, UNICEF and uh, UNDP and UNAID. I mean, the list goes on and on. We also do a lot of work in the corporate world, mostly with large multinational organizations. Some of my most interesting clients besides the UN have been NASA. And more recently, I've been working with CERN, which is another amazing organization. That's fantastic. When you have an engagement with a client, is your work typically one-on-one -on -one where you're working with different individuals or is it you're teaching a class or a course or is it a mixture of both? A mixture of both, but more the latter, more the, uh, the group. Uh, mm. you know, we brought in to do some work with a team or with the whole organization in many cases. You know, they want us to improve a particular skill set or a particular competency. I mean, something like diversity and inclusion. I mean, just to give you a quick example, at the International Civil Aviation Organization, that's one of the UN agencies, they, they had us do uh, diversity training for everyone. They made that mandatory. Now they are about to embark on team building and on ethics. So I don't want to say that's a typical engagement, but that is fairly typical. Yeah. Sure. When, when, you're, when you're working with an organization like the UN or other organizations similar to that, these NGOs, is there a lot of red tape to deal with or is it fairly smooth? Some are much better or worse than others. I mean, they're, they're all over the map. Uh, but yeah. uh, generally speaking, yes, anything that's a governmental organization, and that includes the UN, will tend to be more bureaucratic than corporations. And corporations, again, are going to vary significantly by industry. I'll never forget this is going back about 20 years. I happened to be working with Con Edison at the same time that we were working with MTV. 
I mean, you talk about two <laughs> different cultures. <laughs> I mean, the contrast in terms of risk averse and, you know, and open to risk and, and conventional and unconventional and formal and informal. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, you know. So for us, that's a wonderful experience to have the diversity of client base. And then the other big thing is, of course, working globally, we work across many different cultures. And again, we see huge differences in cultures for companies and organizations in certain countries versus others. Even within a company or an organization, you know, the regional offices may be very, very different from mm. one another. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We've talked a little bit about some of your assessment tools. Would you pick one of those tools and maybe dive in a little bit on the detail for a minute? Does that work? Yeah. So the Global Diversity Survey actually was designed in the, in the early 2000s because there was nothing out there that did a global job on assessing and measuring how we deal with diversity and inclusion based on the book called The Diversity Directive that was written 20 plus years ago. Uh, by Robert Hales and Armida Mendez-Russell. And Army and I developed the GDS based on the H3 model, and that's the head, the heart, and the hand. So the logic here is that in order to be systemic around diversity and inclusion, you have to be insightful, that's the head work. You have to be inclusive, that's the heart work. And you have to be adaptive, that's the hands work. So think of it as cognitive, emotional, and behavioral. You need all three. And, and typically when we do workshops, we focus on head work. What's the business case? What is the definitional stuff? You know, got to focus on the hard work. You know, how do we build openness and inclusion and empathy and understanding other points of view uh, and being able to see things from another perspective? And then the hands work is being able to take action to actually solve problems in a collaborative way and engage across differences in meaningful ways. So, head, heart, and hand, you know, cognitive, emotional, behavioral is critical. Uh, the, the next part of that model for the GDS is we work in different sort of circles or levels. So the three levels that we measure for the GDS are self, others, and world. And self, others, and world up against head, heart, and hand, the, the sort of horizontal and verticals, creates a three-by-three three matrix of nine competencies. So in the head, it's self-awareness, uh, understanding differences, and objectivity. And then it's sensitivity, openness, and fairness at the heart column. And then it's engagement, communication, and collaborative problem-solving at the world level. You know, if you were a perfect human being, Troy, or if I were one, we'd be brilliant at all nine of those competencies, and none of us are. So the purpose of the of the tool of the GDS is, firstly, it's developmental. That's critical. So it's to measure where our relative strengths and weaknesses, and then to focus on which box we want to really develop further. And for each of the nine boxes, there are three strategies, and for each strategy, there's a, a template of an action plan. And so you decide on which strategy you want to focus on, and then you either as is or you modify or rewrite the action plan and that's your follow-up work after you've taken the survey. I should mention there are two versions of the GDS. Uh, there's what we call the leader version and the general version. So depending on who's in the, in the audience and in your workshop, if it's a leadership group or management group, then they get the management version. The tool is exactly the same in terms of the items and the model, the three by three, the nine competencies. But the strategies are different for the general audience, for somebody who's not a supervisor, manager, leader, compared to those who are leaders, managers. So it's just a higher level strategy and action plan. But otherwise, it's the same tool, and we can combine or differentiate the scores based on whoever's in the room. Usually, it's a management group, I have to say, for diversity work. We do sometimes work with, uh, with the general employee base or staff base, but tends to be more at the managerial level. Sure. 
do you sense any recurring themes as you work across different organizations? Even before you come into a company, you could say this is something that we see frequently as a challenge for an organization around diversity that they work on. Well, when we look at the nine boxes and the three by three matrix, the model, the most common weakness in organizations, the most common, it's not every organization, but the most common is the head column, the inside column, as opposed to the heart and hands, which means that the self-awareness and the understanding differences and the objectivity, you know, the addressing bias, unconscious bias, are usually the weaknesses aggregate-wise, not individually, but aggregate-wise sure. for organizations. Uh, that's not to say that you know organizations could have a weakness in the hands or the heart, but businesses tend to be more action oriented, which is why you know in terms of hands, you see typically higher scores on the hands as opposed to head and heart. Uh, the heart one is interesting because I think we do see very big differences between a corporation, let's say, versus a nonprofit organization like the United Nations. UN organizations tend to be very high on heart for obvious reasons. They have to be inclusive. They're global organizations. It's part of their DNA. It's part of the whole purpose of their organization. I was going to say, is so, the motivation different for those employees working in a nonprofit? Hey, everyone. I wanted to interrupt today's episode for just a minute to talk to you a little bit about feedback. We're in the middle of the podcast, Simply Feedback. And as you know, that's all about helping people to use feedback to make the most of their careers and lives. Over the years we've been doing this, we've gotten a lot of questions about feedback. And I wanted to tell you we've created a series of short videos that answer the various questions that we've received. To get to these videos, go to learningbridge.com tips. You can watch the first three videos that explain the four types of feedback that people give and how to act on each type. Then, while you're there at learningbridge.com tips, go ahead and subscribe to receive a short video each week, usually around two minutes long, that will teach you or remind you of different principles to make the most of feedback so that it works for you. Again, you can find these free videos at learningbridge.com tips and even share the tips with others. Check them out one more time. That's learningbridge.com tips and subscribe for the weekly updates. And now let's get back to today's episode. Yeah, I think that people, I mean, it's a huge generalization, but I think people who go into work in nonprofits tend to be more more generous in the sense of inclusion, more inclusive, let's put it that way, just generally speaking, because their mission is to help the world, to change the world. I mean, look at all the UN agencies, you know, it's to provide food security, it's to look after the children, it's to look after refugees mm -hmm. or whatever. That's very different to working in a pharmaceutical and you're trying to, you know, yeah, you're trying to come up with a better drug, but it's really to sell the drug and to increase mm -hmm. the profitability of the organization. I don't mean to be cynical here, but there is a difference between a non-profit Nonprofits tend to be more generous in the inclusive perspective than for-profits. That makes sense. Thinking of your other survey tools, is there one that uh, besides the GDS that you find to be particularly useful or interesting as you bring it into an organization? Yeah, well, especially with the topic on feedback, I think the Global Leadership Survey is one we should also talk about because the Global sure. Leadership Survey is really about what is your leadership style? And we called it the GLS for good reason, uh, global, because we looked at the research out there. I mean, there's so much research on, on leadership. Global leadership is another matter. And for the last 30 years, there's been an ongoing longitudinal study on what global leadership characteristics are 
the researchers under the acronym of GLOBE, G-L-O-B-E, which stands for Global Leadership, don't ask me what. But anyway, Robert House was the professor, I think, at Penn State, who was the original researcher back in the 70s, 80s. It's now been taken over, I think, by Javidan. But we looked at all this incredible research, and it really is incredible research, looking at what characteristics of leadership are unique to cultures and what characteristics are universal. And my interest was very much on, okay, what are the universal characteristics? And we took all of this this research and we sort of simplified it, I mean, that's one way to put it, into our GLS model. So the GLS model is basically a, a four dimensions. You get measured on four dimensions. Think of it as north, south, east, and west. And those four dimensions that are universal across all cultures are values and action. Think of that as West and East. And then mm-hmm. North and South, ideas and people. And all organizations and all leaders have to deal with values and have to deal with action, have to deal with ideas and have to deal with people. We also call it the 4C model because the leader, in terms of characteristics, has to have conscience, that's the values, that's, that's the ethics, right? Has to have courage, that's the action, right? Has to have creativity, that's the ideas, and has to have compassion and caring, that's the people. Now, very few leaders are brilliant in all four of these dimensions. That's the problem. You get exceptions. I mean, Nelson Mandela, brilliant at all four, you know, mm. but that's, he's the exception, not the rule. But a leadership team, that's kind of interesting because if you take this survey with a leadership team, the question then becomes, where are your team in these four dimensions and which quadrants do they fall into? And the quadrants are also very important because if you high on ideas and you high on action, that's called the problem-solving domain of leadership very typical in businesses. But that's very different to being, let's say, high on ideas, but high on values. That's the sort of transformational leadership. So there are different components of this. And the goal is to have a leadership team that is diverse. So we come back to diversity. In other words, that you've covered all your bases. You've got someone at least on the team who's strong on values, someone who's strong on action, strong on ideas, and strong on people. You need thought leaders, you need people leaders, you need ethical leaders, and you need courageous leaders. (laughs) And Mm. if you can find all of that in one team, great. If you're missing that, you need to think about how to modify your leadership team. And this would apply to a board or to anything, any other grouping. Sure. And so QED Consulting has been in business for around 30 years now. I imagine you've seen changes over time in the issues that you help a company address. From 30 years ago to now, are you looking at different challenges today than you were when you started? Oh, very much so. I I think in the 30 years, one of the biggest changes has been technology. Another global, of course, because everything's global now. Mm -hmm. The internet has changed everything. Uh, The growth of intangibles, I think, is a very, very big one. You know, the fact that the value of the business now is not about its tangible assets, but is very much about what the intangibles are, the know-how of the organization and the reputation. There's the ethics piece. The know-how is about the diversity of, of ideas. So diversity and ethics come very much into the intangibles. I mean, you look at Google today, it's worth, what, a billion dollars or something. Mm -hmm. Maybe 5% is tangible assets. 95% of the value of the organization of the company is in the intangibles. Look at Uber, look at Airbnb. There are no tangible assets. So that's, that's again, where technology and intangibles and global and tech, you know, have all come together in the last 20, 30 years and are changing the way the world is working and the way business works. And then looking into the future, I mean, talk about ethics. Once we've got, you know, um, robotics and artificial intelligence, that's going to raise huge issues for ethics and huge issues for diversity and enhanced human beings and gene splicing and who knows what's coming down the pike. 
Yet even in my own career, I've seen that change. Learning Bridge has been around for about 20 years now, but the difference between what we're doing today compared to 20 years ago is tremendous. And technology is neutral. That's the other thing, Troy. So, you know, you can use technology for the most wonderful things in the world. I mean, look at medical advances and so on. You can also use it very, <laughs> very evilly, you know, I mean, think of, sure. you know, the atomic bombs and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Sounds like ideas that come from a, a doctor of philosophy. <laughs> there you go. So it's the most useful thing I ever did was study philosophy. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thinking about the, the different surveys and different engagements that you've had, is there a time when, when feedback has really changed somebody's life? Sometimes we see, you know, a point of inflection comes when I receive some particularly useful feedback and it changes my career or it changes my view. Viewpoint. Yes, people have come to me and said, this experience or this coaching activity or this simulation has really changed my outlook and maybe has changed my direction and, you know, those sorts of things. I think that is also one of the pieces. Um, I mean, you do a lot of 360s, obviously, at LearningBridge. We've only got a few uh, of our tools that have the 360. It takes a greater level of maturity, I think, for organizations to do 360s. They can be very anxiety-provoking for, for some yes. leaders. Uh, we know that, and that's why the coaching is so important to be able to address that. And sometimes a 360 without coaching could be negative. But yeah, with 360s that are well done can certainly change people's lives in terms of seeing how others see them and uh, then adjusting their behavior and their approach based on those wonderful insights. I, I know what you mean. The stress of finding out what that feedback is can sometimes mm -hmm. almost lead to a fight or flight reaction where I'm going to run away from this feedback because I'm afraid of what might be there. Well, this is where I think the, uh, some of the more recent research in the diversity field can be very helpful. There's a, a lot of discussion right now around the importance of psychological safety for diversity and inclusion. It's one thing to be diverse, and it's one thing to have an inclusive culture, but it's got to go deep into the organization so that people feel psychologically safe enough to be able to speak up, to give honest feedback, <laughs> that's the key word, but also to blow the whistle, for example, if something doesn't feel right or smell right to you. And the, the work of uh, Amy Edmondson, I think, is very, very powerful. She talks about, you know, if you've got low accountability and you've got low psychological safety, she calls that the, the apathy zone. If you've got high uh, psychological safety but low accountability, that's the comfort zone. You know, you know, nobody's pushing you and you're perfectly comfortable, you can speak up. But if you have high accountability but low psychological safety, that's the anxiety zone. And that's what we see the most in organizations today. People are anxious, uh, they're stressed, um, they don't feel comfortable enough to be able to speak up or blow the whistle when appropriate, but they are pushed to be accountable and that creates great anxiety for people. The healthiest organizations are ones where you have accountability, high accountability, but you also have high psychological safety. People feel comfortable, they feel supported, they have a sense of well-being, therefore that box is called the learning zone. So people can make mistakes. <laughs> There's not that great anxiety if I make a mistake, that's the end of my career. I can make mistakes, but I can learn from my mistakes. I can speak up, I can say what's on my mind, I can be honest in my feedback. And it's getting organizations into that learning zone. So yeah, so if you come into an organization and you find that they're sort of stuck in that anxiety quadrant, yeah. what are some things that they can do to get out of that into that safe quadrant? So there are a lot of things. I mean, it's really, uh, the, the leaders obviously tend to set the tone for the culture of the organization. So they can build trust. I mean, that's the most fundamental thing. You see this in the dysfunction of teams. What's the baseline? 
a lack of trust. So you've got to get people to trust you, to feel that they are on your side, that they care for your well-being. You know, obviously that they're honest. The whole ethical thing is so critical here, that they're reliable, um, mm-hmm. they're trustworthy. Building that is critical for psychological safety and, and to get out of their anxiety zone into the learning zone. That must be quite a good feeling as you work with an organization if you can see that change start to happen. Oh, very much so. It's it's greatly rewarding to see the work that these organizations are doing and the changes they are making and sort of really addressing the, the challenges that the world faces. Um, extremely rewarding and extremely gratifying to know that there are people with such incredible talents trying to make a better world. That's fantastic. So, Alan, if people want to know more or if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best thing that they should do to continue the conversation? Uh, three ways. Uh, they can email me, alanrichter at qedconsulting.com or qed at qedconsulting.com. That's even easier. They can certainly call. It's 212-724-3335. Or they can check out the website, which is qedconsulting.com, and uh, certainly they can contact us through that. Fabulous. Any other thoughts that you want to add as we wrap up our conversation today? Uh, Keep the feedback coming. What else? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, Alan, thanks so much. It's been great to chat with you. And thank you again for joining us on the podcast. And I'm sure we will continue the conversation elsewhere. But thank you very much. Thank you, Troy. And uh, thank you, Learning Bridge, for putting this all together. Take care.